We are preaching through the Gospel of Luke, and this morning we find ourselves in Luke chapter 6. Luke chapter 6, if you'll open your Bibles to Luke chapter 6. Seems a strange time of year for a sermon on legalism, but the more I studied this week, the more I decided, praise God for His providence, perfect time of year to hear a sermon on legalism. Because we're all getting ready to make New Year's resolutions. And we need to be reminded that the human heart has a way of turning good intentions into self-righteous lists and laws. We've seen Jesus confront the religious leaders of his day for their lack of repentance and their lack of compassion. They didn't think they were lost and they had no compassion for the lost. If Jesus came to save sinners, those who believe that they have no need of grace or forgiveness are not going to respond positively to his message, right? In fact, his message is completely antithetical to their religious system. He came to give his life as a ransom for many, and they were living their lives in such a way that they believed through the adherence of strict adherence to the Mosaic law and all the extra laws they added to the Mosaic law, they would earn their salvation. They didn't recognize God had arrived because Jesus didn't cozy up to them. In fact, he rebuked them for their legalism and their hypocrisy and their lack of compassion for the lost. It's been said that all other religions of the world have one thing in common. Man trying to work his way to God. Whereas Christianity is different from all the other religious systems of the world because it's not a system. It's a relationship. It's a relationship. As Jesus points out in his high priestly prayer in John 17, verse 3, and this is eternal life, to know You, the only true God, and Jesus Christ, your Son. This is what it means to be saved. In all the other systems of the world, religious system, man's trying to work his way to God. In Christianity, God gives himself to man. He does all the work. Jesus did all the work on the cross. He said, it is finished. The Pharisees and other religious leaders had misinterpreted the Old Testament as a works righteousness system. That if you kept all the laws and brought all the sacrifices and observed all the festivals, God would be pleased with you. But the Apostle Paul tells us that the Old Testament law is a tutor. It teaches us our need for God's grace, and for a righteousness outside of ourselves. For by works of the law, 
will no man be justified, Paul writes. And this was a person who was a Pharisee himself. He ought to know. And he said, if anyone was going to get into heaven in this way, it would be Paul, a Pharisee of Pharisees from the tribe of Benjamin, circumcised on the eighth day, as when he said, in regards to keeping the law, impeccable. But he counts that all rubbish, all rubbish compared to the grace of God found in Christ Jesus. The Pharisees had taken legalism to a whole new level. And we'll talk about that today. When Jesus came, he exposed the absurdity of the whole system of legalism and the insanity of those trapped in it and the lethality of the whole rotten, corrupt system. So today we'll look at the absurdity, the insanity, and lethality of legalism. As Christmas approaches and we prepare our hearts to celebrate the birth of Christ, we must remember that God sent us a Savior, not a system. He sent us a Savior, not a system. So let's define legalism. I'm going to do quite a bit of teaching on legalism and then we'll get into the text. You need to understand what this is and what it's not. So, legalism defined. Legalism is a system of rules and regulations for achieving salvation or spiritual growth or some other kind of reward for keeping those rules religiously. You see, it starts in the heart. You think you're going to get something from the keeping of the rules. The highest reward being salvation. And then the next highest reward being spiritual growth. I'm holier than other people. I'm more godly than other people. God is more pleased with me than he is with other people. And then some of the other rewards are, I now have the ability to control other people, to tell other people what to do, or to protect myself from anyone ever criticizing me or confronting me. These are the rewards for legalism. The system is fueled by pride. It's often marked by self-righteousness, hypocrisy. Hypocrisy saying one thing but doing the opposite. Loopholes. Legalists are great at finding the exception clause. Contradictions. Absurdity, ignorance of the more important laws. Jesus told the Pharisees, you tithe on your mint and your dill and your cumin, but you avoid the weightier matters of the law, like compassion and justice and mercy. An overemphasis on the letter of the law, ignoring the spirit of the law. You know, I'm keeping this law perfectly, and and everyone else is like, that's not what that law is about. Oh, well, I'm keeping it perfectly, so I'm a good person. And we also see arrogance, stubbornness, self-delusion, a lack of compassion, 
and eventually a hatred for anyone who tries to point out the flaws in the system or reform the system or not abide by the system. It's a hard issue. Rules in and of themselves and keeping rules is not legalism. We are people who want to keep the law of God, are we not? That's not legalism. Legalism becomes legalism when the heart says, I'm a good person. I'm a better person than you. God must be pleased with my righteousness because of my rule keeping. And that's why it's so deceptive. Because what does the prophet Jeremiah say about the heart? It's deceitful. Who can understand it? Even Paul says that he hesitates to judge his own motives. He's waiting for heaven when all will be revealed rightly. That is not to say that we shouldn't examine our heart and search out our motives, but the heart is so wicked that we can talk ourselves into thinking we have pure motives. I believe the Bible tells us at best this side of heaven, our motives are mixed at best. The believer can do things with good motives, but often lurking in the background is pride, self-righteousness, fear. So difficult sermon this morning because we're digging into the heart. We're getting to the sin behind the sin, behind the sin, behind the sin. Easy to spot a legalist unless he's in the mirror. But we're all legalists at heart. Reasons for legalism. Number one, first and foremost, it's a prideful attempt to earn salvation. Why would anyone want to do that? It's a free gift. So you don't have to humble yourself. You don't have to repent. You don't have to glorify God as Lord and Savior. You don't have to listen to Him as Lord. This is heresy. It's the worst of all heresies. Paul says... Any false gospel, let the false teacher be anathema. Read Galatians. Oh, foolish Galatians. Who has deceived you? These were people who were saved by grace and they were going right back to their legalistic system. Secondly, we see legalism as a misguided plan for pleasing God after your salvation. This is legalism out of ignorance. So even people with the right gospel will often in their sanctification revert back to legalism. You have some folks who say, well, you just need to let go and let God and stop trying to be sanctified. That's not the correct teaching. Let go of legalism. Let go of self-righteousness. Let go of laziness. Let go of carnality. Sure. But we are called to work hard in our sanctification. God is working with us in our sanctification. But what happens is people start to say, look, I am very sanctified because I do X, Y, and Z. 
And they start to drag works, little by little, back into their justification. God is pleased with me because I do X, Y, and Z. The scriptures tell us that there is nothing that can separate us from the love of God that is in Christ Jesus. And many Christians are walking around legalists in their sanctification saying, God loves me today. Oh, now he doesn't love me. I blew it. Well, let me do some works. Now he loves me. Oh, I blew it again. Now he doesn't love me. It's like they've got this theological daisy and they're plucking petals. He loves me. He loves me not. He loves no, that's the way we love. That's not how God loves. His love is steadfast. When he chooses to place his love on the elect through faith in Jesus Christ, nothing can separate us from the love of God that is in, that is in Christ Jesus. Read the end of Romans 8. Now, a father, like any good father, can be displeased with his children when we choose to sin. But he doesn't stop loving us. If that's the way that you love your children, one minute you're approving and affirming them and loving them, and the next minute to manipulate their behavior, you're like, oh, I can't believe you would do that. Oh, after everything I've done for you, all the sacrifices. This isn't at all God's attitude towards his children. That's the heart of a legalist. Number three, legalism is a way to make yourself feel better than others or to control others. Here's the power of legalism, why it's so addictive. Since I'm a good person, I have the right to judge you. You don't keep the rules that I keep. Therefore, I am more righteous than you. I am more holy. I have the authority to lord it over you. And to point out everything you're doing wrong. But I have immunity. You can't confront me. I keep the rules, at least the ones I think are important, when everybody's looking. Well, when the important people are looking. See how it changes. It's capricious. It it's shifts, shifting sand. The political correctness, tolerance, and multiculturalism movements are all forms of legalism. All forms of legalism. We're the good people because we affirm these people. Yeah, but you're like rioting and destroying private property and setting things on fire. Doesn't matter. We have the right ideas and the right philosophies. So we're good people. It's a philosophical legalism. Well, how do I get in the club? How do I be a good person, do everything we tell you to do? Of course, you stack the deck and pick the laws and rules that are advantageous to you. It, it's sick. The tolerance movement. You're a good person if you're tolerant of all ideas. What about my ideas? No, not your ideas, Christian. Well, then that's not tolerance. Who said it had to make any sense? 
Legalism is never a cohesive system filled with contradictions, absurdities. Here's some other motivations for legalism. Number one, pressure from family or church or denomination or culture. Traditions become legalistic. It's the way we do things. It's how we know we're good people. I have lots of seminary friends from the South. They tell me about this cultural Christianity that maybe we see, because we're in the buckle of the Bible Belt here in Kern County, but it's the way they describe it in the South. Everybody knows Jesus. And you're a good person if whatever. Don't drink, don't dance. What's the saying? Don't drink, don't chew, don't date girls who do. And whatever circle you run in, they have their little rules. And as long as you keep those rules, you're a good person. No heart worship, no repentance, no studying your Bible, no change, no growth. Just keep the rules. Now, some of our traditions are good things. I need to warn, especially the young people. We we were all young people. And every next generation has the habit of looking at their parents' generation and judging their parents' generations. So it's a good thing, I think. I'm looking around, hold on. To not wear a baseball hat in church. <laughs> if it, just in case there's a visitor here today, don't want to single you out. I grew up under that ethic that that was disrespectful to wear a baseball hat, actually indoors, which you can now wear one indoors, but something about wearing it in church. So Floyd Jones used to go around, I hear, and knock baseball hats off the kid. Yeah, (laughs) it's not just a rumor. Okay. He must have toned down after I got here. So, yeah. Um, Number two, it's easier to be a legalist than think biblically about your choices and your heart motives. So much easier to just have the list and stick to the list than stop and think, why am I doing this? Is this for the glory of God? Is this a good thing biblically? Is this allowed? What Paul says, just because you can doesn't mean you should. I'm paraphrasing. Is this going to help me grow in Christ? Or is this going to be a stumbling block? Just easier to have the list of rules. It's uh, number three, a way to look good while avoiding the laws you don't like doing. I don't even need to explain that one. I heard chuckles. People get it. Number four, a way to pay back your salvation or make up for past sins. And we would say, no, no, this isn't our theology. But often in counseling, this is what I find is people haven't really grabbed hold of justification by grace. They're trying to pay back that heavy debt of sin. Especially those who had one of those really 
awful testimonies, which I think is a wonderful testimony. Wow, God brought you from that to this? Praise the Lord. Praise the Lord. But sometimes people struggle with their past life and they're trying to do good works, not out of their love for God and what He's done for them in Christ, but because they're trying to pay off and prove to people, I am a good person. And then finally, I've already mentioned this, it, it's, a, it's a way to exert control over others. Or to protect yourself from other people having the right to confront you or criticize you. I see this a lot in people with really difficult fear of man issues. They're, they're very insecure in their pride. And you have to tiptoe around them. And when they're in sin, you can't point it out because they've got their list of proofs that they're a good person. And sometimes the harder they keep the list, the more they're hurting the people around them. So the very thing that makes them feel like a good person is actually the thing that is killing all their relationships. That's a, that's a tough discipleship situation. You're knocking over somebody's sacred cow. This is what makes me a good person. No, it's what makes everyone not want to be around you. Well, shame on them. Well, okay, but you're going to be lonely and angry and bitter because no one wants to be around a self-righteous, judgmental legalist. And we all get to that place at one time or another and praise God for faithful brothers and sisters and the Holy Spirit and the Word of God to point out our legalism and help us repent and enjoy the freedom of our salvation. Here are a list of good ideas that are not legalism, but often become legalism. Good ideas that are not legalism, but often become legalism. So we don't want to throw out the good ideas because there might be legalism, but we need to be on guard for these things. So number one, avoiding... Legal activities, lawful activities, biblically legal activities that you know are a special temptation for you to turn into something sinful. So you make up a rule, I'm just not going to go to certain kinds of movies. I'm just not going to listen to certain kinds of secular music. Man, when I was an unbeliever, I was really into that scene. And when I hear that kind of music, it just tempts me to go right back to that lifestyle. And so you make a rule that I'm not going to go back to that music. Now, you've got to be careful that you don't then say, I'm a good person because I don't listen to fill in the blank. Because where's the grace of God in your life? Have you forgotten how you were saved? It's a good idea, and you've got to be careful because what will you be tempted to do? Judge everyone who's listening to the devil's music. Now, certainly we listen to music that we probably shouldn't. Paul says to abstain from anything that is even a hint of immorality, coarse jesting. Uh, watching the last video from the parenting class the other night, and 
and he read that passage, and he said, well, there goes 90% of primetime TV. You know, we're running out of uh, entertainment. But, but you need to sort that out between you and the Lord. Secondly, setting personal boundaries for yourself or for your family or even for the church in some cases could be good ideas to help avoid sin or spiritual laziness. Like in our house, if the kids are going to play a video game, we have these timers and they set the timer for 30 minutes. Or if one of the girls wants to go on Pinterest, set the timer because you know what happens. Next thing you know, two hours have gone by. And you become addicted to those things. Are we legalistic about the 30 minutes? No, but we hear the timer go off and then it's, hey, the timer went off, you know. I'm almost done with this level. Right. There's always another level. If I don't save my work, then when I go back to play the next day, it'll be gone. Oh. Well, you should have thought of that when you had five minutes left on the timer. So, still, it's not a bad idea. If you know where you struggle to set some limits, just don't let the limits and the rules become your standard of righteousness. Oh, it'll happen anyways. But be on guard for it and let your family help you to know when you've crossed the line and just be aware that when you point out where somebody's becoming legalistic, they are apt to point out all the areas in your life where you've become legalistic. And then finally, a plan for adhering to spiritual disciplines that help you grow in Christ. New Year's coming, New Year's resolutions. I'm going to read my Bible every morning for 30 minutes. That's not a bad thing. But it doesn't make you more righteous than the next guy because he only reads his Bible for 20 minutes. Right? Wait, are we going to one-up each other? You know? I'm reading 31 minutes now. I'm better than you. How long did you pray this morning, honey? <laughs> only 30 minutes, but all 30 minutes were for you. God's not pleased with this, you know, like, really? You guys are going to read your Bible and pray with this attitude? Don't then, if you're going to have that attitude. Change your attitude and go back to reading your Bible and praying, not as a legalist, but as a children of the Most High who can't wait to meet his Lord and Savior in the morning for conversation. We have unwritten policies here at the church about dressing modestly. Churches who've tried to actually come up with a list, not a good idea. What are we going to sit at the doorway with the chart and tape measure and, you know... Nothing says, come to Christ, like legalists at the front door. And yet, it could be a huge distraction, not so much in the winter, but come spring or summer in Tatchby. And um, 
Our culture's not helping with modesty. So there's better ways than setting up rules coming alongside someone in discipleship. And that's not what you start with. If they don't know the Lord, then what, you're going to tell them they're dressed immodestly? That's the message of the gospel? Didn't Jesus eat with tax collectors and prostitutes? Not saying if you dress immodestly, you're a prostitute. But the point being that Jesus dealt with the heart first and then the behavior. So there's legalism for you. Now let's see it on display and how Jesus handles it. Luke chapter 6. Now it happened that he was passing through some grain fields on a Sabbath. Sabbath, Shabbat, from sundown Friday to sundown Saturday. And the Bible has a few words to say about resting on that day and not doing any strenuous labor and to prepare enough food the night before so you're not cooking meals on the Sabbath. All to rest, to remind us of our humanity and our frailty. We need to rest. God made the heavens and the earth in six days. He rested on the seventh, not out of fatigue, but to survey all that he made and enjoy the goodness of his creation and to set an example for us. And yet, if you're a legalist, the Sabbath became the highlight of your week. Here we could really load up on the rules and prove to all the world what righteous, holy, disciplined people we are. And to really separate us from those who struggled keeping the Sabbath laws. Now, if you were just eking out a living and living hand to mouth day to day, how are you going to go the whole day without working? The rules were set up for the rich to get richer and the poor to get poorer. The Pharisees had taken something that was intended to be a blessing and a gift from God to mankind and turned it into the most burdensome drudge. I need a adverb. The day had become a drudgery. Instead of people looking forward to their day of rest, they were afraid of it. You got through a Sabbath and you're like, okay, I think I didn't break any laws. And then you could relax for a few minutes the next day and then it was like, oh no, the Sabbath is coming again. So here's the scene. The disciples are walking through a grain field on the Sabbath and they're picking... Heads of grain, which was allowed in the Mosaic Law to pass through somebody else's field and pick some grain. It was there for the poor and the sojourner, you know, the foreigner passing through. And they would rub the grain in their hands to get the chaff off of the wheat. And then they'd eat the wheat. 
But some of the Pharisees said, Why do you do what is not lawful on the Sabbath? They saw the picking as harvesting and the rubbing as threshing and the separating the chaff as winnowing. This is work. (gasps) And so Jesus, instead of arguing with the legalists on their level, because these people are absurd and insane, points out the absurdity of their legalism from the Scriptures. Instead of saying, well, wait a minute, that's not harvesting. Look, if people can't figure out that that's not harvesting, arguing that that's not harvesting isn't going to get you anywhere. So Jesus argues from the Old Testament and uses a figure that no one would argue against in the Old Testament. David, the king of Israel, a man after God's own heart, a man whose throne is everlasting, Messiah would come and sit on David's throne. Have you not even read, Jesus says. By the way, that's an insult to the people who said they knew the word of God better than anyone else. Have you not even read that David, what he did when he was hungry? He and those who were with them, how they entered the house of God, the, the temple, and took and ate the consecrated bread, which is not lawful for any to eat except the priest alone, and gave it to his companions. At the very least, Jesus is making himself equal with David and his disciples equal with David's companions, which the Pharisees would be appalled. But he's got a point. David, running on the run from Saul, his father-in-law, hungry, enters the temple, asks for something to eat, Every Sabbath, 12 loaves of bread was baked and put on a gold table in the holy place. And it was called the bread of presence. Reminding them of the bread of life, the manna in the wilderness. After Sabbath, the priests were allowed to eat the older bread that had been replaced. But David and his companions get to eat the show bread. The priest was Ahimelech, and he said, as long as your men are sexually pure, they've kept themselves from women. And he said they have. And they would have known this story And they had no answer. I'm sure instead of repenting, it infuriated them that they were made to look ridiculous. That he won the argument. But then Jesus says this, The Son of Man is Lord of the Sabbath. Remember, Son of Man is the Messianic title from Daniel. Jesus is taking that title on himself And he's saying, Messiah, Son of Man, is Lord of the Sabbath. I have authority over one of the Ten Commandments. That's pretty heady stuff. Mark records that Jesus 
says these familiar words, the Sabbath was made for man and not man for the Sabbath. When was the Sabbath made? After God made man. God made man on the sixth day of creation, the pinnacle of creation, and then instituted the Sabbath. The Sabbath is a gift from God for man. Man wasn't created for this. It wasn't that God created everything except man and then had the Sabbath and said, you know what? I need to make some people to run the Sabbath. It doesn't work that way. And beloved, we need to look at our lives and we need to look at the church and always be on guard for where programs and policies that we put in place with good intentions have somehow switched and now we're slaves to our programs and our policies. When you're part of a ministry that used to bring you joy and somehow over the years there's so many rules and policies and regulations now that it's a burden to be in that ministry, something's wrong. If it's bringing you farther away from God instead of closer to God, something is terribly amiss. So be on the lookout for these good rules you've put in your house or your home that are now have become a burden. Christmas is the perfect example. Honey, if it wears you out making cookies for everybody in Tehachapi, then don't make the cookies anymore, right? It's okay. Yeah, but everybody's used to getting the cookies, and if they don't get the cookies this year, they're going to think I don't like them, or something's wrong, or you're judging people's hearts. This isn't what's going on in our house. This is just the... (laughs) My poor wife is homesick, so I'm not singling her out as an example. But the cookies, right? Everyone needs a gift. Everyone has to have a gift. No, not everyone needs a gift. So you get past Thanksgiving and you're tired from putting on the big Thanksgiving and you look at the calendar and you go, oh my goodness, I'm not ready for Christmas. This time of joy (laughs) and celebration. Uh, Christmas with the cranks. We're skipping Christmas this year. Too much work. Matthew records these words, but if you had known what this means, we saw this last week, I desire compassion and not sacrifice, quoting Hosea 6.6, you would not have condemned the innocent The great delicious irony in all this, because we know this is Jesus, the Son of God, who created everything, including the Sabbath, comes down, God in human flesh, and the religious leaders are saying, look, no, you don't understand God. We do. This is how you do the Sabbath. And Jesus is like, 
Have you ever seen a movie or a play where something like that happens and the main character looks to the audience and goes, really? Really? Is this happening right now? This person's going to school me on? I made up the Sabbath. I designed the Sabbath. I'm Lord of the Sabbath. No, you don't understand God. We understand God. We're the godly people. We'll be the ones defining the Sabbath. Thank you very much. I looked up the absurdity of the modern Sabbath laws from Chabad.org. What is Shabbat? That's a Hebrew word for Sabbath. Throughout the 40 years that our ancestors wandered in the desert, nourished man, nourishing manna would rain down from heaven except on Shabbat. But no one went hungry. Extra rations would fall on Friday so that everyone would have more than enough for the holy day. But then here's the money line. The Torah, first five books of the Bible, Torah, law, the Torah is very brief about the observance of the day, telling us that no work is to be done and no fires are to be kindled. But... Rabbinic tradition, coupled with careful study of the Torah's text, yields a wealth of information, much of which is found in the Talmud. So, God's Word has very little to say on how to observe the Sabbath, but don't worry, rabbinic tradition is here to save the day. Twelve chapters of Sabbath regulations. You need a PhD in Sabbath to understand them all, literally. You can have a Sabbath expert come to your house and help you to know how to observe the day of rest. So we move from the absurdity of the legalism to the insanity. By the way, in the absurdity, you can keep reading about this. Maybe if you have some time, look it up. It, it's comical because it's absurd, but at some point it's no longer comical. It's sad. But some of the other Sabbath regulations of Jesus' day, you could only walk 3,000 steps from your home. That's not very far. But the Talmud says, if you prepare a pot of food, walk 3,000 steps, place it there the night before, then on Sabbath, you can go your 3,000 steps, and wherever the food is, that's considered home. So you could take 3,000 more steps from that pot. And if you strategically place your pots all over the town, (laughs) but who has time for that? Only the people who aren't working real jobs. I was reading that Walt Disney wanted trash cans placed every 25 feet from a hot dog stand because a hot dog should be finished in 25 steps. And he wanted people at the park to finish their hot dog and go, oh, look, a trash can. He was a bear to work for. We enjoy the park, but working for Disney was like working for a Pharisee. This trash can is 24 steps. You were not allowed to drag a chair on a dirt floor on the Sabbath because it might dig a furrow in the dirt which would be plowing. Like, only if you were going to put seed in it, right? But no, we don't want 
to come anywhere near to a Sabbath violation. So rule upon rule upon rule upon rule. Another way to get around the 3,000 steps would take a piece of wood. Blessed is the lintel, you know, the crossbeam of the doorframe of your house and string it up somewhere in town. And that's the boundaries of your house now. So there were all these lentils hung all over town to get around the Sabbath rules. Loopholes. On another Sabbath, he entered the synagogue and was teaching. And there was a man there whose right hand was withered. Now, let's, let's remember this. This is the Son of God, God incarnate, the Word made flesh. He's teaching. Wouldn't you like to be at that synagogue? Oh, what teaching there must have been that day. But here's a group. The scribes and the Pharisees were watching him closely to see if he healed on the Sabbath so that they might find reason to accuse him. That is pure insanity. The word of God is being preached like it's never been preached before in the history of the world or since. And they're waiting for him to heal someone. But he knew what they were thinking because he's omniscient. And he said to the man with the withered hand, get up and come forward. And he got up and came forward. He's going to do this on purpose. He's going to do this in their face. He's going to pick a fight. And Jesus said to them, I ask you, again, very insulting to ask questions of teachers. Is it lawful to do good or to do harm on the Sabbath, to save a life or to destroy it? No good answer to this question, because if they say it's lawful to do good, then they can't accuse him of breaking the Sabbath. But if they say to do harm, there goes all their followers. But there's more than meets the eye here. Jesus is quoting Isaiah, the first chapter. When the prophet, that great book of Isaiah, lays out God's entire case against Israel and why judgment is coming. Let me read Isaiah 1, 11 to 17 to you. And what are your multiplied sacrifices to me, says the Lord? I have had enough of burnt offerings of rams and the fat of fed cattle. And I take no pleasure in the blood of bulls, lambs, or goats. When you come to appear before me, who requires of you this trampling of my courts? Bring your worthless offerings no longer. Incense is an abomination to me. New moon and Sabbath, the calling of assemblies. I cannot endure iniquity and your solemn assemblies. I hate your new moon festivals and your appointed feasts. They have become a burden to me. I am weary of bearing them. So when you spread out your hands in prayer, I will hide my eyes from you. Yes, even though you multiply prayers, I will not listen. Your hands are covered with blood. Wash yourselves. Make yourselves clean. Remove the evil of your deeds from my sight. Cease to do evil. Cease to do harm. Learn to do good. Seek justice, reprove the ruthless, defend the orphan, plead for the widow. These are the sacrifices God desires from the heart.
again from the modern Shabbat regulations. When treating on Shabbat a patient who is critically ill or when dealing with an individual whose life is in danger, known in Hebrew as pekuach nefesh, one is commanded to violate the Shabbat. Yeah, we know this is God's rules, but we're going to have to break his rule because um, we don't want someone to die on the Sabbath. What does that do to the character of God? Hey, God made this rule, but we're going to break it this time because, you know, we don't want anyone to die. It, it, it places the legalist above God. It's, 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 they don't use the word exception. They say it's okay to violate the Sabbath. Sorry, God, we're playing the trump card on this one. Uh, that whole phrase is ruined now. <laughs> that wasn't a knock on Trump. Just, you know, the point being, look, God, we're, we're going to try to keep your rules, but it's ridiculous in this case because this person will die, so we're going to violate the Sabbath because you didn't give us an exception clause. I love this. When it is necessary for the sake of Pekuach uh, Nefesh to disregard the Shabbat laws, it does not matter who violates the Shabbat. The one who is able to perform the task most quickly should do so. And whoever does so is praiseworthy. If there are several people who can attend to the endangered individual, it is preferable that the Shabbat desecration be done by the greatest Torah scholar and the most pious person present. Does anyone know CPR and the Torah? Great. You're up. And then pages and pages of laws about, look, if you have an elective surgery, try to schedule it for Tuesday so that you're not in the hospital on Shabbat. And if uh, a life-saving device breaks on Shabbat, it's okay for someone to work on the device, but you really should have backup devices so that the technician doesn't have to work on the Sabbath. And oh my goodness. He said, well, these people don't exist. No, I'm reading. This is modern day stuff here. I w went golfing once on a Friday afternoon and met a Sabbatarian. We played a round of golf together. And at the end, you know, I want to present him the gospel. He wants to present me the gospel. We find out we're both believers. And uh, then he says, so what are your views on the Sabbath? Like, oh boy, here we go. So I'm like, well, what do you do on Saturdays? And he gave me his list of things that he's allowed to do. And are these official teachings of your church? Well, some are, but others, they kind of leave up to us to figure out what we do on Saturday and what we don't do on Saturday. And um, I'm quoting all kinds of scripture from the New Testament about how we have freedom in Christ and we're no longer under the law and by works of the law will no man be justified and he was just so stuck on Saturdays. Sad. The insanity of, of it all. Finally, the lethality of legalism. 
After looking around at them, he said to him, Stretch out your hand. And he did so, and his hand was restored. But they themselves were filled with rage and discussed together what they might do to Jesus. Mark records they began conspiring with the Herodians. Pharisees and Herodians were no friends. They conspired together as how they might destroy him. The legalists of the world united against grace incarnate, against love incarnate. Legalism kills. It's lethal. It kills obedience from the heart. It kills biblical wisdom and replaces it with mindless rule-keeping. It kills humility and true repentance. It kills relationships as it turns everything we do into some kind of sick spiritual competition. And worst of all, it kills the grace of God and it impugns the character of God as if this is God's heart. And it ultimately seeks to destroy Jesus, his gospel, and his disciples. Jesus said, Come to me, all who are weary and heavy burdened. My yoke is easy. My burden is light. He was talking exactly to the people who were suffering under the crushing weight of legalism. Paul writes, Colossians 2.13, And you who were dead, you legalist, who were dead in your trespasses and the uncircumcision of your flesh, God made alive together with him, having forgiven us all our trespasses. On the cross, it is finished. By canceling the record of debt that stood against us with its legal demands. This he set aside, nailing it to the cross. Therefore, no one is to act as your judge in regard to food or drink or in respect to a festival or a new moon or a Sabbath day. These are all things which are a mere shadow of what is to come, but the substance is here. The substance belongs to Christ. All those things pointed to Christ. Beloved, be on guard against legalism in your own heart. God hates legalism because it makes the cross irrelevant. And it drives the sinner far away from God. Because he thinks he needs no grace. For unto us a child has been given. For unto us a Savior has been born, not a system who is Christ the Lord. Amen. Amen. Father God, forgive us for our legalism. May the beauty of the gospel of grace shine brightly in our hearts. May we set good biblical boundaries in our life, but not let them become proof of our worth of receiving the gift of salvation, Lord. We were unworthy sinners. And your grace found us and gave us new life through faith in Christ. I pray specifically for anyone here this morning, anyone hearing this message, trapped in legalism, to repent of self-righteousness, 
and receive the free gift of salvation through faith of Christ. Anyone suffering under the heavy burden of other people's expectations, that you are free in Christ, that there is now no more condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. Lord, be glorified this Christmas season. In Jesus' name, amen. Amen. You're dismissed.